Good morning, everyone, or afternoon now, technically. Um, welcome aboard. I will just slowly kill time while everyone connects. <laughs> I know there's a bit of a delay and a lag, but welcome aboard. Welcome to the Alexander Lloyd and DMH Stallard Employment Law Update. It's lovely to have you on board. Um, right, I'm going to do some screen sharing while you all uh, connect. There we are. So while everyone's connecting, would obviously like to welcome you aboard. As I say, Alexander Lloyd and DMH Stallard present uh, an employment law update. Um, which we're going to cover, you know, basically this is the second in a series of webinars we've uh, we've been delivering this year, this time in partnership with um, Rebecca Thornley-Gibson from DMH Stallard. Hello, Rebecca. Hi there. Hi, everybody. So I've been um, co-hosting, I suppose, or, or, or sharing this platform with Rebecca for about 18 years now, which is, is pretty upsetting for... Um, for both of us, I think, in terms of time frame, <laughs> but uh, lovely to, to keep this, this collaboration going. Um, as I said, today we're going to plan to cover a bit of a general update on employment law uh, from Rebecca with some examples of recent cases and important legislative developments. Um, we're also going to delve a little deeper into the future of uh, restrictive covenants, which um, basically currently under government review, we'll examine how these covenants uh, can be used for business benefit and what potential changes may arise as a result of the, the current consultation taking place. Um, the presentation has three sort of natural sections. So via the Q&A button, which you should see at the bottom of your screen, we will invite questions uh, through that. And um, I'll pose a selection of these questions to Rebecca at the end of each section. Um, we anticipate an hour in total and um, hopefully that answers most of your questions. Um, the slides and so on um, should be available to you all at the end I, and we are recording this so if you want to go back and watch it again or or share with your teams that should all be available to you. So moving swiftly on, um, here's my little plug I suppose for Alexander Lloyd, hopefully by now most of you know me and the team. Uh, our job, HR recruitment across the southeast of the UK um, there's myself, Damien, Theo and Danielle. We work with any shape or size business, any sector from SME through to Global Blue Chip based in Surrey, Sussex, Kent and London. I think it's you know, pretty Ron Seal does what it says on the tin. Um, we are also the creators of the Talk HR UK podcast. Um, we release bi-weekly at the moment. I think there's about 20 odd episodes available on Apple, Spotify and Google podcasts for you to listen. And we have a YouTube channel for you to watch. So if uh, you're that way inclined and would like to feast on the various HR conversations we've been having with HR leaders, they're there for you. So um, there we go. But with no further ado, I, I suppose I should um, mention the feedback form. So at the end of the podcast, it, a feedback form should automatically land with you um, immediately. If you could complete that there and then, that would really help Rebecca and I with future topics and how today's gone. Um, but with no further ado, I will um, pass over to Rebecca. I'm on the slides today, so apologies in advance, but <laughs> fingers crossed, that's the right set of slides for you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Simon. And thank you for being my slide slide mover. So I will, I will prompt you um, at, the, at the relevant moments. But good afternoon, everybody. Um, and thank you for joining. Um, 
55 minutes is effectively what I've got to, um, to go through some uh, legislation that um, is coming up, some legislation that has passed in the past uh, few months, um, and some case law um, that's developing, and um, there's been some fairly uh, mon monumental um, cases in the last couple of weeks that have come out, Uber being one of them, of course. And then I think it's um, probably quite relevant to look at the future of restrictive covenants as well, because there's been a government consultation on that, which um, will be quite interesting to see what, what they do about um, the restrictions put on employees by employers and um, whether that impacts on um, sort of general, um, general sort of economy and movement of workers from um, organization to organization. So, so a lot to get through and um, we'll keep an eye on the Q&A or I know Simon's gonna keep an eye on the Q&A and at the end of each section, we'll, uh, we'll try and deal with um, as many of those as we can, but obviously um, uh, we might not be able to deal with all of them. So apologies in advance. So moving firstly to something that you might well have thought, um, gosh, Brexit, um, uh, blink, and you probably missed Brexit this year because um, there have been other stars in the uh, employment world um, that um, probably meant that um, Brexit wasn't the number one priority like a lot of um, HR professionals thought it probably would be. So Simon, if we can just have a look at the next slide and um, just remind everybody that we did of course um, um, have Brexit um, and that received royal assent in January of 2020. Um, and from the 1st of January, 2021 is really when we have seen or will see um, changes to how um, the courts and the tribunals are going to interpret um, what was um, EU law for the purposes of um, our UK employment. What has happened with the EU law is that effectively it's all been created and put into UK law. Um, what th that means is that things such as the Working Time Regulations, the Equality Act, 2P, that all derive from um, EU directives. Those are now all effectively subsumed within um, UK law. And when decisions are made by the tribunals and by the courts, um, they no longer have to um, look at the um, European court cases and they can actually interpret those cases um, as they wish to. So we're no longer bound by that previous EU body of case law. What's likely to happen is that courts and tribunals will probably be quite influenced by it. Um, but they certainly don't have to follow it. So, as I say, um, you know, it sort of slipped into uh, it slipped into being on the first of January, twenty twenty one. But I think we're all still grappling with all things COVID related and pandemic related. Um, but it is worth um, um, it is worth a mention. And so, next slide. Um, you know, obviously, this is a, this isn't a webinar about COVID, but it. You know, it needs to be mentioned um, again. We're 12 months in to the pandemic in terms of various emergency measures that were implemented. Um, a lifeline, obviously, um, of furlough 
that was um, um, announced by the Chancellor last March, at the end of last March, and obviously all of you and all of us employment lawyers, um, you know, spent quite a long time getting our heads around quite what the impact of furlough was going to mean. And we then in the second phase, were, were getting our heads around uh, a lot of workforce planning issues and who could be retained, how businesses needed to change. And unfortunately, um, redundancy programs were relatively common. Um, I don't think any of us thought that, you know, come March 2021, we would still be talking about furlough in terms of it being still in operation, but it is, it's still in operation until September 2021, which is a massive relief for a lot of industries, particularly travel, hospitality, leisure, obviously retail uh, will be opening next month, fingers crossed, um, if the roadmap goes to plan. Um, but, you know, the furlough scheme has prevented job losses not all job losses and um, you know businesses have had to change and realize that even with furlough um, they needed to um, make job losses but that furlough scheme is there thank goodness with um, just a reminder of the employer contributions in July employers will have to contribute 10% towards that 80% cost and then in August and September that will increase to 20%. What we've also um, had as well, um, and it may impact some of you um, on today's webinar, is we've had the um, uh, self-employed grants that have been given um, by the government and HMRC contact those that are effectively eligible for the grants. And we've got the fourth and fifth grants that are coming up. So that's 80% of three months worth of trading profits up to a maximum of seven and a half thousand pounds for each grant period. So we've got the fifth grant coming up May to September, which is a little bit different, though. Um, the difference there is that that fifth grant um, will be um, almost means tested. So if profits haven't fallen by less than 30%, then you won't get the full 80% um, grant. You won't get the full seven and a half thousand pounds. What you will get is 30% of the 80%. And then I think it's worth mentioning, um, there was new legislation brought in in relation to annual leave as a result of COVID, which effectively allowed the carryover of annual leave where employees had not been able to take it because of something related to the pandemic. Now, I think a lot of employees simply didn't take holidays because there was nowhere to go. Um, and um, there has been this, you know, saving up um, of holidays and this backlog and emerging problem um, that employees are going to be saying, well, I've got my holiday from 2020 um, and I know there's legislation that allows me to carry um, uh, quite a lot of that over. So you've got a 2020 plus 2021 holiday situation, maybe at the end of this year, you know, second half of this year, when things start getting a little bit more um, back to normal, people will want to take um, quite a lot of holiday. So I think, again, HR needs to audit and needs to put in place um, holiday policies specifically um, to deal with that. So that might be a requirement for employees to take so much of their holiday 
um, you know, in the next couple of months. Um, and then obviously the realization that just because you've got lots of holiday doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be allowed to take it all in one block or, or when perhaps um, the employee wants to take it. So um, just keep an eye on, on that because I think it's going to be um, a bit of a stick that employees are going to be beating us up with um, later in the year. Okay, next slide. We always see in April what we call the annual rate increases. They're, um, um, they're relatively modest. Um, I did wonder whether they were going to be frozen this year um, so that they didn't create an extra financial burden on employers, but um, they haven't been. So um, the figures are there um, and you'll have the slides. So I'm not going to say anything um, about them specifically other than in terms of the national minimum wage increase, um, please be aware that the national living wage is now applicable for the 23s and over. Um, previously, it was 25 and over. Um, so again, um, it's, it's a case of having a look at your employees and those who are 23 and over now are entitled to the national living wage. So obviously a benefit to those employees, but an extra wage cost for, um, um, for businesses. Um, I just want to say one quick thing about um, the um, redundancy um, pay. So maximum weeks pay for redundancy going up to 544. That will take effect from um, early April. What it doesn't mean necessarily, though, is that you can make somebody redundant on the 31st of March and think, oh, well, we've not um, we've not had to pay them that increased amount it's not that much so you know unless you've got a particularly long server it won't make too much of an impact but with statutory redundancy pay the actual um, termination date is worked out on the basis of adding on the statutory notice so somebody made redundant on the 31st of March you actually calculate their redundancy pay as if they'd been made redundant at the end of what their statutory notice period would have been, even if you pay them pylon. So it's it's a point that's quite often missed um, by employers. So it's just one I just want to um, flag up. Okay, um, just carrying on with the holiday pay theme on the next slide. Um, the, um, the ruling actually came in in um, April of last year in relation to how you calculate holiday pay for people with variable pay um, and variable hours. It used to be that you looked at the last 12 weeks and did an average of that. The last 12 weeks when they'd actually earned um, um, pay. Um, now that created all sorts of issues in terms of people that um, you know may well have um, quite, um, quite fluctuating salaries and would provide, you know, sort of seasonal variations. So somebody might take their holiday at a point where they hadn't been paid very much um, in the previous 12 weeks. And that could have been a deterrent taking their holiday then. And working time regulations don't like things that create a deterrent for people taking holidays. So as of last year, the reference period for variable pay or hours employees um, was increased to 52 weeks to um, um, ensure that calculation and any bumps in seasonality um, was clearly ironed out. Now, if you've got a worker or an, well, if you've got a worker, obviously holiday pay is workers and employees, but if you've got workers and employees who have not been with you for 52 weeks, then you just do an average of the amount of weeks 
um, that they have been employed. Um, but what the legislation also um, uh, made clear when it came in last year as well, um, and just on the next slide, is they appreciated that um, you couldn't look back, you know, sort of, you know, it's sort of a huge period of time if somebody hadn't worked and received pay in the last 52 weeks. So if, for example, somebody had been on um, maternity leave. So what the legislation did was to actually put a limitation on how far back employers should actually um, look. And they can only, they only need to look back 104 complete weeks, so two years effectively, um, to do the, um, um, the averaging if somebody hasn't worked um, for um, some of those um, previous 52 weeks. Okay, so um, next slide. I just want to say a little bit about um, immigration. Now, I'm not an immigration specialist. We have immigration specialists at um, DMH, um, but I think it is worth um, making, um, uh, making it clear that, you know, the immigration landscape is very dynamic. Um, Brexit obviously has removed the right to freedom of movement for EU nationals and EEA nationals. Um, and there will be new rules in place on uh, right to work checks from July 2021 in respect of EU and EEA nationals. Now, unfortunately, um, the government hasn't put out yet what those new rules will be. There is what's called a grace period from the 1st of January 2021 until 1st of July, well, 30th of June 2021, where the right to work checking is the same as it's always been. So you can check on the basis of passport, etc. Um, what will happen from 1st of July 2021 is effectively you'll be checking on the basis of immigration status. Um, so do keep an eye out on um, right to work check guidance that will be coming out. Um, also keep an eye out um, for any EU, EEA nationals that um, um, are employed by you, that they have put their um, applications in for the UK um, settlement scheme, because the deadline for that is coming up 30th of June 2021. Um, so Again, it's worth um, just doing an audit of your staff to check, um, check on um, that particular matter. Um, next slide is um, um, IR35. Uh, hopefully all of you will have um, done your preparatory work on this. All of you will have looked at the um, responsibility you might have as an end user client to do status determination statements. Um, if you're the fee payer as well, uh, which often you will be if you're the end user client um, directly contracting with somebody who has usually a personal service company, um, then you'll not only have the responsibility for the status determination statements, but you'll also have the responsibility if somebody has what we call deemed employment status for um, dealing with the deductions of tax, national insurance and the apprenticeship levy. So um, I think IL35 is going to prove, prove quite a headache um, going forwards in um, 2021. There's already been lots of queries we've received as to um, what the deemed employment status is. The CEST test tool, the HMRC have said is going to be um, you know, they 
HMRC will effectively rely um, on the CES test um, outcome, um, provided you have inputted the answers um, in a genuine, genuinely truthful way. Um, but the CES test is proving um, inconclusive, so not giving you any status, um, in about 20-25% of cases. So there will be a situation whereby you'll start to look at whether um, you do something other than um, looking at the CES test and, and start to look at individual cases themselves. Now, I think, um, you know, some people thought that IL-35 might get pushed back um, because of the budget um, and the, the March 2021 budget, which, you know, might try and give, again, employers a little bit of a um, breathing space on having to deal with all things IR35 in the private sector. Um, but no, it is here to stay. And obviously it's a way in which HMRC can collect more revenue. So why wouldn't they implement it uh, following last year's delay? Okay, just moving forwards to um, some potential changes to um, tribunals. So um, last year, there was a commission report which um, laid out a number of recommendations on the basis of what happens to employment tribunals. One of those was looking at whether time limits should be delayed, should be increased to six months in, for, for all claims. Now, that is, I think, quite worrying for employers. It's hard enough now waiting for three months to actually see whether a departing employee or an employee who's got a discrimination claim is going to bring um, a claim. And we all know it's not three months. We all know it can you know, be longer than that on the basis that by the time you know, sort of it's gone through the ACAS process, by the time it's gone um, through you know, sort of the admin sort of processes, and, and by the time it actually gets to you, it can feel a lot longer than three months since that departing employee, um, you know, sort of was, um, was, was with you. If they're increasing time limits to six months, you're going to be twiddling the thumbs quite a while to, you know, sort of work out if you've got a problem um, in respect of that exiting um, employee or that employee who might have raised a um, discrimination grievance. And then contract claims was the other key aspect of the commission report in that um, at the moment, any breach of contract claims in the tribunals um, have a damages limit of 25,000 pounds. And what that means is that if there is a, um, um, a contract claim which is in excess of 25,000 pounds, employees either have to say, okay, well, I won't claim that because I'm going to the tribunal, or they in effect have to issue their claim in either the county court or the high court, which brings about uh, quite significant costs, um, burdens, um, and employees don't tend to like to be at risk of costs. The county courts and high courts work on the basis that the loser will pay the winner's costs, whereas we know the tribunals are, um, um, you know, sort of much more um, liberal in respect of that, and, you know, costs are usually um, only awarded where somebody had no chance at all with their case, um, or where somebody has acted unreasonably in the course of the proceedings. If contract claims are increased to £100,000, that does potentially give a lot more um, scope for employees to you know, bring um, heftier claims and for the risk of compensation um, in terms of breach of contract claims um, to be um, quite an exposure for em employers. 
So that's a real whiz through some of the legislation. Um, Simon, I don't know whether um, there have been any questions. Um, I can see if, um, if I just put my big fat we, finger we on the Q&A button. <laughs> <laughs> we do. So um, I won't name the people, but, um, but thank you for your questions. Um, so one question, I'm not sure if we address this in the latest slide. We've been saying that no relaxed holiday carryover of this organisation unless we stop people taking leave due to COVID. So if they chose not to take leave, as COVID meant there was nowhere to go, we're saying our usual carryover rules apply with no two-year carryover. Is that safe and reasonable? Okay, so... Yeah, so if, if, if you are happy that they have the ability to take their leave, and that could be taking their leave at home. You know, we don't have to go to you know, Spain to take our leave. Um, we don't even have to go to somewhere else in the UK to take our leave. We can still take our leave um, at home. So I think my view would be that if you have said, look, you can take leave and we've asked you to take leave and there's nothing that has stopped you taking leave, then yes, then, you know, your usual carryover rules will be, um, will be fine. It's it, the legislation that was introduced on the COVID annual leave was really to look at people who were working you know a lot of hours so your supermarket employees your um, healthcare staff your care workers um, you know delivery drivers who you know couldn't take their annual leave because they were really too busy um, but unfortunately the um, the government sort of in its drafting missed a bit of a trick in making that clear but I think that you will be able to um, justify saying to people, I'm sorry, but you know, you have you can't carry over your um, your four weeks over two years because we let you um, have the opportunity to take your leave. So I think um, I think on that basis you should be fine. Thank you. So another question: If by the first of July an EU colleague um, has not settled or pre-settled status. Would they potentially not have the right to work in the UK? Well, um, they it depends on their immigration status at that point, what visas they might have got, but they wouldn't have necessarily the right to work in the UK simply by being an EU or um, EEA citizen. So uh, yes, that is that that is the problem. Um, so um, that's why it's so important that you're carrying out the um, audits that people have applied for that settled status by. Um, um, that um, settled um, state, um, status by the 30th of, of, of June. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to be looking at, well, what does give them a right to work in the UK? Um, and it will be on an immigration basis. So do they have a, you know, a skilled worker visa, you know, and are you going to sponsor them um, in respect of that visa? Thank you. And lastly, so do we have to include commission payments oh, right. when okay. calculating holiday pay? So their, yes. their specific commission scheme means someone could earn, say, 50K commission in one month after signing a deal they've been working on for over a year. And then their average holiday pay for the next 52 weeks will be significantly higher. Unfortunately, commission payments, um, it's quite clear from the court decisions over the last few years that commission payments are um a component that has to be included in the holiday pay calculation um so com commission is earned as part of the performance of their duties 
Um, and um, yes, I'm afraid um, it does have to be included. Um, and just to um, um, make that uh, person who asked that question scratch their head even more and possibly put their head in the hands, uh, we've also got um, some cases coming up on voluntary overtime and um, Supreme Court decisions coming up on uh, whether voluntary overtime is also going to be included within the holiday pay. We know compulsory overtime has to be, but voluntary overtime it probably will have to be. Um, so yeah, just a um, word of warning to keep your eye out on that. Thanks, Rebecca. Okay. Okay, um, right, I'm gonna go through a few cases. Obviously every year there are so many cases, every, every month there are so many cases, but I wanted to just pick out um, a few that have been sort of um, um, moving up the um, um, appellate courts, moving up from the EAT to the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court, um, and which now um, are starting to give us, you know, clarity that we, um, um, we haven't had before. So um, the first couple of cases relate to um, vicarious liability, which is a concept in employment law that um, you know I think most of you will probably be familiar with effectively the employer is responsible for the acts of its employees if those acts are done in the course of employment and that's a very broad brush approach with regards to vicarious liability but that's the general principle. Now vicarious liability uh, was starting to get a little bit out of hand um, and employers were um, thinking, gosh, you know, are we absolutely responsible for everything that our employees do? Um, and in the Barclays Bank case, um, which was brought as a class action by various um, um, ex-employees, um, Barclays Bank were um, sued on the basis of um, medical reports that they um, obtained um, when an employee started work and on the basis that very it was quite a tragic case um, on the basis that the doctor um, that they used for these medical reports that was self-employed not employed by Barclays but was effectively you know used by Barclays on a self-employed basis that doctor um, carried out a number of sexual assaults on staff now the um, staff members who had suffered the sexual assault said, well, actually, Barclays, it's your fault. You're, you're liable for the acts of the doctor. Um, and Barclays defended it on the basis of, well, no, he wasn't an employee um, and we can't be responsible for everything. And self-employment um, should not give rise to vicarious liability. And the Supreme Court held unanimously, that's absolutely right. Um, vicarious liability cannot go that far um, to extend to being responsible for the acts of self-employed um, individuals. So I think from an employer point of view, um, you know, that's a good decision. Um, obviously, it's not a good decision really for anybody on the basis of it's such a horrible case. But from the employee's point of view, they had no one to actually then go and sue. I think the doctor, um, you know, the doctor just wasn't around and certainly wouldn't have had um, um, the um, financial uh, wherewithal to, um, um, to pay out on the damages anyway that the employees were potentially seeking. So um, yeah, so Barclays Bank uh, confirming self-employment doesn't give rise to vicarious liability. 
And then we had the case of Morrison's, um, WM Morrison's. Morrison's supermarket got themselves involved in quite a number of cases over the last couple of years. But this particular one was in respect of a breach of the Data Protection Act. And you might remember it. So a very disgruntled senior employee, when he left, decided that he was going to disclose the payroll data of um, everybody at Morrison's um, um, to everybody. And that was considered, obviously, um, gross misconduct. Um, and, you know, the employee um, was, um, uh, was taken to task for that. And um, on top of that, however, um, another class action was brought saying, well, actually, Morrison's let him do that. Obviously, Morrison's didn't say, please go and disclose the payroll data, but Morrison's didn't put in place enough protections um, to avoid the risk of him doing it. Um, the employees said, well, they knew that he was um, able to access the employee data. They knew that he was disgruntled, so they should have taken steps to actually stop it happening. But the, um, the employer Morrisons on this case were able to say, no, it's not our fault effectively, and we shouldn't be vicariously liable um, because that wrongful disclosure of payroll data was not so closely connected with that employee's um, acts that he was authorised to do, and therefore wasn't done in the course of his employment. So um, Morrison's um, at the Supreme Court uh, succeeded, um, and again, those employees were not able to um, obtain any damages against uh, Morrison's themselves. So. So there's possibly been a little bit of a turning of the tide on vicarious liability um, as a result of those two cases, but um, it is obviously something that employers are always um, very much aware of. Um, and, you know, training for employees helps to mitigate risks of, um, or, or helps employers to be able to defend cases where they are um, said to be vicariously liable. Um, but these two cases, I think, can perhaps be used going forwards as saying, well, look, you know, there are clearly some things that are just so outside the course of employment. And certainly from a self-employment perspective, um, we should not be responsible. OK, um, a few discrimination cases. So um, this is quite a technical case, actually, um, the case of Heskett. Um, so what happened here was that the, um, um, the government department, Secretary of State for Justice, um, had to effectively um, tighten its um, sort of financial belt. And part of its tightening was that they stopped, um, or sorry, they slowed down um, the pay progression scales. Now, slowing down the pay progression scales actually had more of an impact on younger employees than it did on older employees. So several smart employees, those smart younger employees, decided that they were going to bring um, indirect sex discrimination, um, indirect age discrimination cases, um, and say, well, look, this has had um, um, a more um, um, negative impact on us. It's going to take us longer to get to those um, increased um, pay scales. Um, so we're going to have a direct um, financial detriment. Now, there is a rule in um, um, sort of age discrimination that, or a rule in discrimination generally, but it's often used in age discrimination that costs alone cannot justify discrimination. 
but that's always been seen as quite harsh. So over time, there's been this um, concept of what we call a costs plus argument, where you have the cost, but then you have to have something else which might then be able to objectively justify um, the discriminatory um, effect. And in this case, the costs plus argument put forward was um, the need to live within um, its means. So effectively, the need to be able to budget um, properly. Um, and quite surprisingly, um, the Court of Appeal said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll accept that as a costs plus argument. Um, you weren't just, um, um, you know, reducing costs per se, uh, you were doing something so that you could live within your means um, because the 2010 public sector um, pay freeze um, meant that you had to review your um, remuneration policies. So um, although it is arguably still cost related, it was just enough for the Secretary of State for Justice Department to get home on. So worth considering if you're looking at um, remuneration changes. Uh, within your organisations and there are age discrimination issues, you might be able to get home on the cost plus argument. Okay, uh, moving to the next discrimination case. Um, this is in respect of um, what we call PCPs. So where there is a practice criteria um, or policy that's operated by an employer. And where a PCP has um, um, an impact on one group of people with a protected characteristic, um, it will result in um, um, potential discrimination claims. Now, in the case of Ishola and Transport for London, the, the principle in this was, well, does a PCP have to be something that's ongoing? Is it something that has to happen, um, you know, perhaps on a regular basis? You tend to think policies are things that are ongoing um, and practices are things that are ongoing and they're not just, you know, one-off acts. But the Ashola case was brought on the basis that, well, look, there was a one-off act here and that one-off act was the failure to resolve a grievance for the particular employee. Um, and the court said, no, a one-off act um, can't be enough to say that there is um, a potential um, 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 PCP um, in this particular um, scenario. A PCP really needs something that has what we call an element of repetition. So because you get something wrong once doesn't mean that it's a policy or a practice. If it can be evidence that you're not going to, you know, have um, um, a potential of you know continually getting it wrong or you know sort of an active policy of continually getting it wrong um, so again you know a good case for employers on the basis that um, um, you'll be able to you know push back on employees who say oh because you did this one thing wrong and it's impacted on me because of my protected characteristic um, you've put in place um, an unlawful um, PCP um, so that was a showla um, next case um, was clarification on um, um, shared parental leave policies that employers um, may have. And a lot of employers were worried that um, some of the um, enhanced maternity um, pay policies they had um, were being used to um, 
effectively say that, well, male employees taking shared parental leave, if they don't get enhanced shared parental leave pay, that's discriminatory because you give enhanced maternity pay to female employees. So, you know, it's a logical argument. Um, and again, this went through the courts until the Court of Appeal um, decided, no, actually, the correct comparator um, to decide if it was discriminatory would be a female colleague on shared parental leave and not a woman on maternity leave. They are two different types of um, family leave and family pay. And therefore, um, there is no discrimination that comes into play where you have an enhanced maternity pay policy, but you don't enhance shared parental leave. So I think, again, you know, a lot of employers were probably quite pleased about the case because it meant that they didn't have to take away um, or their um, enhanced maternity pay, or they didn't have to put in place the enhanced shared parental um, leave pay. So um, things could stay, um, stay very much as they were. Okay, the next case um, is, oh, excuse me, sorry, I've got a dog barking, um, which I'm sure we've all been used to. Um, I've got a six month old puppy, so I'm just going to give him my hand to bite and hopefully that will <laughs> that'll quieten him down. Um, the case of um, Gallagher and Abellio um, was about some of the substantial reason um, dismissals. And with some of the substantial reasons, you would expect that you have to follow a fair procedure. Um, Section 98 of the Employment Rights Act requires a fair procedure to be followed in respect of any dismissal. Um, in this particular case, there was no procedure followed at all. Um, and the courts were asked to decide, well, is that fair or not, taking into account Section 98? And what the tribunal said was, well, actually, in this particular case, it was fair. Um, because it would have been absolutely futile to have carried out any procedure in this case where there had been a breakdown in the working relations between um, two particular um, colleagues. And because it would have been futile and it would potentially have exacerbated matters even further, um, it was a case of, well, right, let's just go um, to dismissal um, on a, some other substantial reason basis straight away. Um, so remember, some of the substantial reason isn't um, a fair reason for dismissal where you would be doing a disciplinary process. So you're not, um, you know, you're not inviting somebody to a disciplinary, but you would normally be inviting somebody to a meeting to discuss the issues that arose um, that then potentially um, would give rise to the some other substantial reason um, dismissal. Um, but the tribunal very unusually here said no procedures were not um, necessary in this case. It didn't make the dismissal um, unfair. But I would say if any of you have read this from the EAT, please do be very careful. Um, and I would say that this is a very rare example of where procedures can be dispensed with. So I think you, you know, um, um, you, you follow this at your peril um, and there won't be many cases where it's, um, um, it's gonna work for you. Okay, um, the next case of um, Evans and London Borough of Brent. Um, I think this is a really worrying case for um, employers because what effectively happened um, was that the employee was very much at fault here. There had been some financial irregularities and the employee was dismissed for gross misconduct. 
not only was the employee dismissed for gross misconduct, but the employee actually uh, was required in the High Court when he was sued to pay back a significant amount of money to the employer. I think it was, you know, it was 40, 50,000 pounds. But he still brought a tribunal case, you know, quite cheeky, but he still brought an employment tribunal case. His employer said, look, this cannot be fair. Why can he bring a tribunal case when clearly there is no prospect of success of him receiving a financial award? Because, you know, at the very least, we'll be able to say there was contributory fault um, on the part of the employee, even if there is a finding of unfair dismissal there because of procedural irregularities, there will be no financial compensation payable to him because there will be a 100% contributory fault award. Um, the court said, look, somebody is entitled to their day in court. So you couldn't strike the case out. Um, you know, he was entitled to a declaration that there was an unfair dismissal on procedural grounds. And it wasn't an abuse of the process um, for that um, case to be continued. So I think, again, you know, quite a worrying case um, for employee, uh, employers. Um, where employees simply want to have their day in court. And we've all had those cases where we think, look, they're going to get nothing out of this. There's going to be no financial award at the end of it. Why are they continuing with it? But employees are allowed to continue with cases and get that declaration of unfair dismissal. Um, and it may be important to them. So, um, yes, so a little bit worrying. Um, and just finishing off on the cases with a Tupi case. So, um, um, this Jupy case actually concerned a, um, um, a position where there were beneficial changes made um, following a Jupy transfer. And those beneficial changes um, were obviously not to the detriment of the employee. Now, the, um, the employer here actually wanted um, the overall general prohibition on contractual changes by reason of Jupy. Um, to apply because they didn't want these beneficial changes that had occurred pre-transfer to actually um, come into effect. What had happened was that you had four transferring directors who had um, changed their contracts deliberately prior to the transfer to their advantage. Um, and that was clearly a disadvantage to the subsequent employer. Um, and the employees um, were found to um, 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 have effectively voided their contracts by making these beneficial changes because the courts held that there is a general prohibition on contractual changes, even where they are beneficial to the employee. So that was actually a good outcome for the employer there, because this was an employer who didn't want to take on changes that had been deliberately made by the um, um, employees pre-transfer. So when you're doing your due diligence and you know you're looking at whether perhaps senior management or directors have changed things um keep an eye out for this case i think it's quite useful okay so um just finishing sorry i did have a couple of cases i had the case of um a couple of weeks ago you will all have seen that uber um has now decided that drivers are workers so Workers entitled to the national minimum wage, they're entitled to annual leave, they're entitled to protection from detriment, including whistleblowing. Now, this case can't go any higher than the Supreme Court. Um, this is why Uber have had to obviously, over the last week, make the announcements 
that they're going to be paying um, um, sums uh, with effect, I think it was from last Wednesday, I think it was, uh, or the Wednesday before, to those drivers. Now, the Uber decision um, concentrated on moving away from the written contract and looking at the reality of the situation, uh, which is what a number of cases have done in this employment status area over the last um, um, few years. But what, what you um, also had from the Uber case was the issue of you're looking at was the legislation intended to protect um, certain groups of um, individuals? It was certainly intended to protect, protect those individuals who were subordinate and dependent upon their engaging organization. And this was very much the case in Uber that they looked at those drivers and said, look, they are subordinate. They had no chance to negotiate their own contracts. They were dependent upon the um, um, Uber bookings um, and um, they were effectively controlled by Uber as well in the way in which they had to um, operate. Um, one thing I would say is that there's lots of gig economy cases still out there. Um, in Uber, personal service was required. So the drivers couldn't substitute another driver for themselves because the taxi industry is obviously heavily regulated and they had to have a taxi license. So you might see some other gig economy cases and they don't find that they were workers. And in those situations, um, it may be that it's, you know, it's accepted that they are still um, um, still self-employed and not workers. And then finally, um, case last week um, regarding sleeping shifts. So anyone involved in the care industry will be interested uh, um, particularly in this one. Um, but for the purposes of national minimum wage, when you're asleep on your shift, you are not, um, you are not working. And as a result of that, you are not entitled to the national minimum wage. So um, Royal Mencap and Tomlinson Blake um, has clarified at, again, can't go higher than the Supreme Court, um, that sleep-in shifts um, are not um, to be um, considered as working hours and are not to be paid. So that's the, um, that's the roundup of cases. Um, there will be many, many, many more cases, but, um, I think you know that that's a good selection of some of the major cases um, over the last um, few months. Simon, have we got any questions? We're good at this point, actually. They're being very well behaved and, and maybe time conscious. So no, no, we're all uh, we're ready to press on to the final section of uh, the restrictive covenants. Excellent. Right. Well, just to sort of finish off, then I just want to sort of have. Um, a few, um, a few sort of um, sort of opinion pieces, perhaps on on restrictive covenants. And in um, um, in 2016, in fact, there was a consultation on uh, whether restrictive covenants should be allowed. Now that consultation found no, they were fine. It was perfectly acceptable for employers to put restrictive covenants in place. Um, there has been a repeat of that, um, but on the basis of looking at non-compete restrictive covenants and looking at uh, whether they should be um, um, changed. So in effect, what you have is a scenario whereby um, the, um, the restrictive covenants on a non-compete basis could be, could be banned completely. Unlikely, I think that that will happen. Um, their use could be limited, so it's for a particular role. Um, 
they could be limited in terms of perhaps time duration. Um, and the whole purpose of the consultation was really to say, well, look, is this providing um, an unfair restriction on employees? Um, have we got too much litigation in respect of um, um, restrictive covenants, um, non-compete restrictions? So that was sort of the general purpose. And just moving to the next slide, what I think um, is likely to be um, subject to the consultation proposals are some worrying aspects. So um, there are a number of European countries that provide for the payment of compensation for the duration of the restriction. So you have a scenario whereby um, in Germany, Italy, I think it is, the Netherlands, um, if you've got a six month non-compete, you'd have to pay the employee for that six month non-compete period, which is quite an onerous um, obligation on the part of the um, employer. But that is something that has been proposed as part of this consultation. Uh, you've also got proposals that um, should the non-competes be for a limited period. So, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months, perhaps depending upon role. And should you have um, um, a situation whereby you have got to provide details of the non-compete before employment starts. So somebody doesn't take a role and they're then told, oh, and by the way, um, here's a schedule of your restrictive covenants. So confirmation of those restrictive covenant um, um, terms, I think it's absolutely essential. They should be in place pre-employment, but you know, they aren't always. That doesn't avoid the issue, though, of when somebody might be promoted. And when somebody's promoted and they're asked to sign up to new restrictive covenant terms, how does that work? Possibly before they take the promotion and the amended employment, they are told what those non-compete will be. Um, and then um, there is a proposal that there should be a total ban on the non-compete use. Now, I was reading a very um, um, extensive um, um, consultation response by the Employment Lawyers Association that came out very much in favour of the fact that we should do nothing at all with regards to the non-compete um, and employers and employees should be free to join up um, and either take them or not take them. Um, but, you know, that is just one particular body that um, is expressing um, an opinion. Um, about them. And you could also say that the Employment Lawyers Association might be saying that because we get a lot of work out of restrictive covenants um, in terms of advice and in terms of litigation um, support that we will give uh, when people breach their covenants. Okay, so moving on to um, um, sort of other um, 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 issues relating to restrictive covenants. Now, for a restrictive covenant to be enforceable, there are really three things that have to be in place. One, they must protect a legitimate business interest. Two, they must be no wider than is reasonably necessary. And three, they must have been agreed. If you don't have those, then your covenant will be enforceable anyway. Um, so the case law that has um, um, been considered um, a lot of people say the case law already protects employees against unreasonable restrictive covenants. So you don't need the um, um, you don't need statutory changes to um, um, to post termination non-competes because the case law already protects employees very well um, in respect of unreasonable covenants that might be there. 
Okay, so just moving on to the next slide, just a reminder that the consultation doesn't look at the other types of post-termination restrictions, which might involve um, non-solicitation and non-dealing with colleagues, customers and suppliers. So basically, um, uh, where there are trade connections that employers want to protect, they will do so via a variety of non-solicitation, non-dealing, non-interference type um, um, restrictions. And the consultation isn't looking at um, putting any statutory um, um, legislation in place in respect of those. Okay, and then just moving to, to um, I think, a conclusion. In terms of other ways of actually protecting business interests, you may have um, a situation where you've got longer notice periods that you want to use to protect your um, um, business. Um, that obviously comes at a cost. You may use garden leave more to protect somebody from going to a competitor. But perhaps slightly less well known is the use of um, what we call sort of atypical restrictive covenants, where you would have um, a financial impact on an employee um, by reason of the fact that if they leave, their bonus or their shares may be impacted. And on that basis, where you, um, where you have those atypical restrictive covenants, those can still be um, those can still be used, although it could be considered that they are an unfair restriction in themselves. You'll also have as well um, strong confidentiality and IP clauses that may well be um, used as other ways to protect you. So that's really all I wanted to say about restricted covenants, but keep an eye out on the responses that come back from the government. And, you know, we could see some change in this area. And I think it will be interesting as to, you know, what happens and whether employers' attitudes to restricted covenants do change. So I'll just let Simon see if there's any questions on this. Hello, we do have, um, there's a couple on this and then one that harks back to the, the previous piece. So if we stay with the current, um, one person has asked, when will these non-compete restrictions be confirmed? So the, the time frame. Oh, Rebecca, you've just popped on mute. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, the, yeah. So the consultation finished um, end of February. Obviously, all things COVID related, things budget related have probably, you know, sort of delayed. Um, but I would expect by we always use words like early summer, which is probably late spring. But I would expect by June, July, we'll start to see, you know, some sort of response to the consultations that, um, you know, employers and trade bodies have put in. Um, and in, in employee, you know, union bodies have put in regarding this. So, yeah, so I keep, keep an eye on it sort of probably from June onwards. Great, thanks. There's a, there's a comment here from someone. They, they unfortunately lost their career in the city on, in the futures market with a, a non-compete from a particular bank. Um, they weren't allowed to work in the same market for 12 months after leaving and uh, the entire department was made redundant a day after Black Wednesday. Um, and the, the comment there that, you know, it's the type of job that if you're out of the industry for that period of time, it would be very challenging to get back in. And the non-compete agreement was agreed as was lawful at that point. OK, OK. Well, you know, 12 months is a long time, um, but it depends very much on the actual, you know, sort of the, the role, the industry sector. Um, and just because you're made redundant doesn't mean that a non-compete or any other restrictive covenant clause becomes 
um, defunct. Um, it doesn't matter what the reason for the dismissal or the termination is, apart from where you have a situation where there is a um, constructive dismissal. So there has been an issue whereby you have got um, um, a breach of contract on the part of the employer, then they can't rely on the restricted covenants then. But, you know, 12 month restricted covenants in industries like insurance, um, um, you know, are quite common because of the cyclical nature um, of renewals, etc. But, you know, the duration is always something that you look at challenging. And lastly, and just, oh, sorry, after you. Yeah, I've just seen, will the sleeping work judgment affect other industries such as fire service? Well, absolutely, I think, you know, if you're, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't see why, um, why it wouldn't. It's very much about what, what you are doing whilst you're sort of effectively sleeping in. Although in the MENCAP case, it did say that, you know, whilst somebody was not performing duties, whilst somebody was not required, um, then they, you know, they could effectively do things at leisure. Now, their at leisure was obviously sleeping. Um, it may be that the fire service, you know, will have, you know, their own contractual um, rules regarding this. And, you know, those contractual rules will be in place um, already. But yeah, I mean, I, I think any, any, anywhere where there is shift work that has a requirement of sort of sleeping in and on-call work will be affected by the MENCAP case, absolutely. That's great. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, and and thank you all, really. I suppose uh, we're there, aren't we? Did bang on time. Oh, we are. We are bang, <laughs> bang on one o'clock. So Ardent everyone pros. that either wants to have their lunch now or, or has to go to a one o'clock appointment, then hopefully we've kept you exactly to time. So thank you very much for um, um, staying with us, everybody. Excellent. Well, obviously, my thanks to Rebecca, who's, who's done all the heavy lifting here today. So thanks so much for your time and, and, your, and your effort in putting this together. Thank you all for coming. Obviously, it's great. I'd love to say it's great to see you all, but clearly I can't see any of you. But um, thanks for, uh, for joining us. The slides will be sent out to you all individually via email. We'll also make the webinar recording available through uh, our own channels, Alexander Lloyd, on our YouTube channel, and we'll probably post something to it on LinkedIn. I imagine DMH will do the same. We'll obviously share the recording there. Um, any further questions, obviously, feel free to reach out to myself and or Rebecca directly. Uh, through the usual channels by email and uh, we'll do our best and you should have some feedback forms landing with you any minute we'd really appreciate your feedback on today and your ideas for future topics really I think that's everything there's uh, you know if you could make your way quietly to the exits we'll uh, <laughs> see you next time and well done to both Rebecca's dog and mine who you, you wouldn't have known would you many thanks everyone see you soon all right thank you bye everyone bye.